Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 88 with David Cancel of the Founder Podcast. Discover exactly what it takes to become a successful entrepreneur and what's possible through entrepreneurship from the greatest minds in business today. Welcome to the Founder Podcast. Here's your host, Nathan Chan. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan and I'm coming to you from Melbourne, Australia. So thank you so much for taking the time to share your earbuds with me. What's been happening in my world, uh, we're working on this awesome product that we've had in beta for the past close to five months now called Founders Club. And uh, essentially it's it's a way that uh, we're going to be able to connect our community together because we've got all these amazing people in the founder community that read the magazine, you know, listen to our podcast, you know, follow us on social, read our blog, part of our newsletter, and we want to connect those people. We want to we want a way for our community to get together and just make a ruckus. And it's so important to be surrounded by like-minded entrepreneurs. And it's even more important to learn from other entrepreneurs. And that's why, you know, we're bringing in monthly mentors. We're doing all sorts of crazy things with this product. So I'm really, really excited about that. That's what we're really focused on at the moment. And uh, the team is growing really fast, which is cool. Uh, We'll be close to uh, seven people now, part of the team, all full time, which is super exciting uh, that things are growing really fast. And, uh, you know, this wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for you. And, you know, I'm talking to you right now, listening to this podcast, spreading the word, sharing our message and uh, just supporting our brand. So I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your attention, and thank you for believing in us. But thank you for believing in somebody. Uh, for those of you that are new to our brand, thank you for believing in somebody that three exactly three years ago knew nothing about entrepreneurship, nothing about design, nothing about apps, nothing about interviewing, nothing about editorial, nothing about anything that comes to do what I do with this media company. So yeah, guys, just wanted to shout out to every single one of you guys that is supporting our brand. All right. So about today's guest, his name is David Cancel. And uh, this one was a cold pitch, actually. We get pitched so often. It's so difficult. You know, we have to say no to most of these pitches. Uh, but this one was really, really good. Uh, this guy's name's David Cancel. He's the founder of a company called Drift. And uh, before that, he's built and sold four other companies at astronomical rates. Uh, his last one, uh, he sold to HubSpot. And uh, this guy is an absolute freak, absolute weapon entrepreneur. And there's so much that you guys can learn from him. I know you're going to love this. This guy, the way this guy thinks is exceptional. And there's so many things you can take away here. So many golden wisdom nuggets, you know, wisdom, however you say it, wisdom, gold nuggets, whatever. 
There is so much gold here, guys. That's it from me. If you are enjoying these episodes, please do take the time to leave us a review. And also, if you're interested about Founders Club, uh, want to know more about it, just go to Founder Club, F-O-U-N-D-R, Club, C-L-U-B, dot com. So Founder Club, so Founder Without an E Club, and uh, you can find out more. If you want to get connected, join the community and get involved in the action, want to level up as an entrepreneur and access our network and all these other amazing, crazy things that we're going to deliver with this amazing product, uh, go to founderclub.com. All right, guys, that's it from me. Now let's jump into the show. The first question I ask everyone that comes on the show is, how did you get your job? (laughs) That's a great question because I've been trying to avoid a job my whole life. <laughs> so tell us about that. Uh, so, you know, I grew up uh, with two parents who emigrated to the United States and both of them had uh, kind of solo businesses. And uh, I won't call them entrepreneurs because that probably sounds too glamorous, but uh, I kind of grew up around that household, which is common. And so I thought, you know, everyone worked seven days a week and, uh, and we're kind of like all in on what they did. And when it's, once I got out into the real world, I realized that I was rare and that most people weren't like that. And so I kind of grew up wanting to become an entrepreneur. And I really didn't know what that meant as a kid. You know, I saw magazines like Entrepreneur Magazine on the newsstand or Inc. or other magazines today would be something like Founder Mag. But uh, I, I had no idea what they meant. You know, I looked inside those magazines and all I saw was... Uh, you know, franchises and kind of get rich quick schemes. And so I had no idea what it meant. And but that was always in the back of my mind. And I guess that's how I got to where I am today. I see. So what was your first company that you started? And, and how did that come about? So I my first company, I was part of a founding team. So I joined two other people who had started who really started the company. And that was a long, long time ago. And basically, we built uh, what would be today Facebook. It was called Bolt, B-O-L-T dot com. And it was kind of everything you could think about as uh, as you see today in Facebook, except, you know, 10 years before Facebook. So super duper early. And we got that to millions and millions of users and kind of went to file to go public. And then, you know, the market crashed in 1999. It never went public, but um, I learned a lot and later got acquired. And so after that, I went off and started my own company called Compete in 2000. And um, really just by almost all my companies have been the same thing. I kind of had an obsession around an idea or a problem, I should say. And then they kind of turn and snowball into a company. I see. Because the way I came across uh, was your growth guy got in touch with me and uh, he mentioned that you've you've started and you've exited five companies. You're 5X. Yes. That's a lot of exits. So I'm really curious (laughs) – uh, how long have you been a founder for and, and started mm. and built, built and sold companies? A long time. So the, the company I first started uh, on my own was Compete, and that was 2000, so 16 years ago. Uh, although I was part of two other companies prior to that and uh, kind of at internet speed, you know, like a year and a half, which felt like five or 10 years back then, you know, uh, when things were really booming in that first craze. And so learn from those two and then started my own in 2000 and since then you know five companies and have invested in a ton of companies and I'm an advisor to a bunch of funds and companies and so yeah I live and breathe this yeah yeah look um, I, I can see it, you, it says you're an advisor investor or director to big commerce 
help scout, reportative, uh, yield bot. There, there's there's some companies that I'm quite familiar with here. So I just want to delve in and, and really understand, you know, what makes you effective? Like, like how is it that you're able to build and sell five successful companies in the space of, let's say, 16 years? What, what, what is that? What is what what is allowing you to do that? Because you know I have mentors and they've still been working on that same company for fifteen years. It might be a three hundred million dollar company, sure, but still, sure. like, um, you know, what what is it that makes you effective? Good question. I think I, one is I'm obsessed, and uh, and I kind of grew up, and my obsession manifests itself in the companies. And I grew up in kind of an environment where I felt like I could outwork anyone. And so, you know, that came from my parents. And I think a lot of people come up and learn and go to school or go to college or learn informally, but they stop learning. And I am obsessed with learning. And my companies are kind of a byproduct of that because I'm obsessed with getting better, right? That's the nature of all organisms on our planet is growth, right? But many people stop growing. And I'm obsessed with growing and getting better. And that's what keeps me starting companies. And I always feel like I have something to prove and uh, that I haven't really figured it out yet and that I could do better on the next one. And it just keeps me going and keeps me hungry. I'd say I'm hungrier than most. And uh, and that kind of fuels me. And maybe it, it comes from, you know, growing up and feeling like I didn't go to the best school. I didn't have the best kind of opportunities and I had just just uh, push through it and break down through walls and I think that's what separates me when I look to uh, other people around me who have worked for me or who, who kind of give in before I would give in and there's, there's no give up with me mm, I see so for example one of your one of your companies performable was acquired by HubSpot mm-hmm. in it looks like 2011. You started that company in September 2009, so that's just under two years that you built yep. and sold that company. Like that's a really short time frame, man. I'm I'm really really curious how an opportunity like that comes about. Like how did that happen? You know, even even your your other company, Ghostry, which was acquired by Everdon, you know, it was it was used by more than 31 million people around the world. Like how can you build a company? How can you, how do you build these companies that fast and and sell them? Like it, there must be more to it. And I really want to delve deep on this, David. So you know, I'm happier that uh, Ghostery when I sold it was you know thirty some odd million people were using it, but today three hundred million people are using it. So that I'm even I'm more proud of that. Yeah, wow. so that, it's a good question. You know, I started. I feel like uh, with all my companies, I'm getting one place where I will say that I'm getting better is. My timing, and you, and you can never have full control over this, but I'm getting better at the timing aspect. You know, I'd say my first company I was a part of, which was Bolt, was probably 10 years too early. And this is common for entrepreneurs. Then my next company, Compete, was probably five years too early. And then, uh, and you just keep going down the line. And I thought with Performable, I was pretty much right on the money. And I'd say that the big learning that people can take away is that my approach really changed from that first company to uh, by the time I had done Performable. And what changed was most people who start companies that I meet are obsessed around an idea that they have, right? So they have some idea, they've listened to the Hollywood stories, and they've had some idea in their shower or walking to work one day, and then they're obsessed around making that idea into reality. 
those people scare me. That was me. That kind of idea scares me because it's a false idea. That the idea that you just had an an idea randomly and that idea becomes the thing has never been the case. I've met thousands of entrepreneurs, thousands, and that has never been the case once. That's a Hollywood story. If you go and look at anyone who makes anything in the world, whether it's uh, an artist who paints, whether it's a writer who writes, whether it's a furniture maker who makes a piece of furniture or an architect, they will tell you that the first version is never the final version, right? It's a game of iteration, right? And, uh, and for some reason in technology and in starting companies, we've been sold this false idea that the first version is going to be the one. And so I'm just going to push through on my idea. And if I just put my head down, my idea will become reality. But that's not the case. And so the big thing that changed for me is I went from a person who was obsessed around ideas to by the time I started performable, I was, I didn't give a shit about ideas anymore. What I cared about was a market, a specific customer that had pain in that market and a team that I wanted to work with. And that was the triangle for me. And yes, of course, I had a million different ideas and, and every day I will have an idea and trip over the, the number of ideas that I have each day, but the ideas don't matter. What matters is identifying a market and in my case, customers who have clear pain, zeroing in on them with a team and iterating nonstop until you build the thing that those customers need. Mm. So speed, you, you said that you're obsessed with growth and, and, and I can see you're obviously obsessed with speed. Yes. Like performable, one year, 10 months, you acquired mm-hmm. by HubSpot. Mm-hmm. In that space, how did you build, like how did you, how did you make that company ready to sell? How did you form that team? How did you mm-hmm. validate that concept so quickly? Uh, great scale? question. Yeah, so we, um, you know, by the time we started Performable, I, was obs- I had this obsession around speed and uh, around, um, you know, the type of product people, whether that's engineers or designers or just product folks that I wanted to work with. And I assembled that team. And then we had a, a kind of strict focus on a specific market and a customer we were going after. We didn't know the exact product that was going to come to bear, but we knew those two things. Those were kind of what we would call our guardrails, right? How so on one end you had team? customer. What's that? How many were in the team? Sorry, I'm really curious. Oh, in the beginning, it was, um, you know, three or four of us. By the time we got acquired, it was um, 25, 26, something like that. Wow. And did you raise, did you raise capital? Do you raise capital for these, these projects or are they self-funded? Uh, not, not all of them, but uh, for Performo, I did. I raised, uh, it was a hard time in 2009. I raised $3 million. By the time we got acquired, we had more than half of that money still in the bank. Yeah, so, wow. Yeah. So we, we were, and I am frugal to this day. Uh, <laughs> and so what we did was uh, cheap, you know, as my wife would say. So what we went, we got the team. We focused on the market and we focused on the customer. And then we had this discipline of iterating every single day with customers. And I remember to this day, we still have customers that we talked to from back then who said our answer to everything when we would talk to them was hit refresh because we would implement things that quickly. And they had that's what blew them away as a customer. Right, and our customer was a marketer, much like the customer of uh, HubSpot. Yes, and so they were one not used to product or engineering people paying attention to them. Two, they were not used to people operating at our speed. And what we were doing was 
learning each day because we had this framework, which I still have to this day, which is assume all your ideas are wrong. Everything that we, whether it's a feature idea, company idea, what have you, it's wrong. And now your job is to ship as fast as possible so that you can go out in the market, validate, test, learn, rinse and repeat so you can figure out how wrong you are. Were you wrong by 10% or were you 100% wrong? You know, it's usually somewhere in between those two numbers, but you are by default wrong about some aspect of the company, the feature, the concept that you have. So get out there as soon as possible. And to give you an example, you know, during that time, which was a very short time, you know, it was like 18 months, we had at minimum a new homepage, and you can see this on the Wayback Machine, and a new pricing page at least once a month, minimum once a month. Wow. Radical changes in our product and our pricing model. And how were you working out what was right and what was wrong? By talking to customers, doing the thing that people don't want to do, which is, you know, we built an A-B testing product at Performable and at HubSpot, but we as, you know, and I'm saying we as engineers, right, I'm talking to myself here, we as engineers and, um, and business people want to get lost in numbers. And I love numbers as much as anyone else. But the hard truth is out there when you talk face-to-face with customers, or in our case, we would do it over Skype, or we do it over the phone, or do it over IM, or what ha- or email. But we were talking every single day, every single person on the team talked to customers. And that's how we were gaining the truth each day. And it's something that is so simple, but it's not easy to do. Most people will not do that. I see. So... I'm curious around like let's 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 focus on this on performable you, you, you know you've started many other companies and sold them quite quickly so take us through the process you know performable you came up with this idea how did you find this idea because you seem to be finding ideas like you you're creating things that people want to buy mm-hmm. at the end of the day you're selling things that people want to buy so what what is the what is the focus here around the ideas? Are you writing them all down as time goes on, and then you're saying you're picking one and you're testing them. Like was performable originally what you'd planned? Uh, no, the market was, and the customer was definitely what we planned. But the you know what the product was was definitely not what we planned, uh, and that's you know that's kind of my point, right? That is what we are learning. So the way, and also one other point there on writing things down. I'm against writing things down. I hate writing ideas down. And I'll tell you why. I mean, you know, it works for my personality. I don't like writing things down. One, because I never revisit them. Two, if I do revisit them, they just cause anxiety, right? I don't need to create to-do lists because a to-do list on a to-do list, everything looks to be the same priority. And I meet too many people who have long to-do lists, who get everything done on their to-do list each day, who don't accomplish anything except, you know, check boxes on a to-do list, right? They've had no impact, real impact in the world, except to check boxes and to-do lists. So I don't, I don't believe in to-do lists. What I do is I write things down to get them out of my head, but I never re- revisit that stuff. And then the ideas that keep coming back to me that, you know, no matter how hard I try, I try to get them out of my brain, but they keep bothering me. Those are the ideas that I pursue. Right? I wait for those to keep coming back to me, even though I've written them down, tried to get them out of my head. Those are the ones that I pursue. And that's how Performable came about. I was thinking with Performable at the time, 2009, one of the problems that I saw was, you know, Compete, I had done a company before that, which was really focused on 
uh, measurement. And one thing that I thought after we sold that company, it got acquired in 2008, 2007, 2008 by a company called WP. We got acquired for $150 million. What I thought after that was like, I'm never going to do an analytics company unless it was tied to action because I was, I had sold analytics for so long, but marketers could not take action based on the analytics, right? Because they didn't know, they, they didn't have developers. They didn't, they couldn't do anything on their own. And so I said, the next time I start a marketing company, I'm going to focus on tying analytics with actions. And that is today we know as kind of marketing automation, right? And so I, I focus on that area and then one specific twist that was bothering me. And that was that all of these social media sites were emerging. And even though marketing teams' budgets were growing over year over year, the number of mar- people in a marketing team really wasn't growing. And so all of a sudden, in a few years, you went from an online marketing team have, having to worry about maybe SEO, uh, their website, maybe some email marketing that they're doing, and maybe they were playing a little bit with AdWords, to all of a sudden having to worry about those things, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, a mobile strategy, both iPhone and Android, you know, push notifications, et cetera, et cetera. And so I thought, how are they going to deal with this? Same size marketing teams, no technical people on their team traditionally. And so what are they going to do to deal with this problem? And that is the, the birth for performable. I see. And, and how, did you make, how do you make your companies ready to sell so quickly? I, tr- I, I try not to sell them, actually. It's kinda, <laughs> really? It's, you know, that's how most things work in life, right? You go the opposite pattern, right? How do you, how do you, get, uh, how do you get beautiful people to date you? Ignore them, right? How do, you get, how do you get your company ready to sell? Try not to sell them. I have the same advice on fundraising. I've raised a lot of money in my days, and people ask me, okay, how do you, how do you go and raise money? I do the opposite. I try not to raise any money. And when people who want to give me money try to give me money, I tell them, no, I don't want your money. And there's honesty in that. So how do you end up taking it? I end up taking it later uh, if we need it for the business. But my default is no, because my default is I'm focused on the business. I don't have time to go running around talking to this venture person, that angel, this whatever. I need to focus on the business and to those people, those investors who are the ones who are used to always saying no, no one ever says no to them. When I say no, it puts them back on their heels, right? This is a classic sales technique. Although in my case, it's not a technique. I'm not trying to do it as a sales gimmick. It's just true. I'm trying to focus on the business. And then also when they hear that I'm more focused on the business than going around and having lunch with them, the more interested they are in the business because they say, oh, there's someone who's actually focused on the business and doing exactly what they need to do instead of chasing me around the block, right? It's called dating dynamics. Mm, I see. So, so how did the HubSpot acquisition come along? So the, the HubSpot acquisition came along, one, because we were moving fast and growing quickly. Two, HubSpot happened to be in the same area as us in Boston. And then three, I we kept coming up as a competitor in deals that they were in, uh, right? So this is always what you want. So there were deals that they were losing uh, that we were coming up in. And, you know, I didn't know this at the time. They also had a desire to want to go up market. And we, our product was more up market, right? L- more technical uh, than what they had back then. And then I didn't know this as well at the time, but they had an incredibly strong world-class sales and marketing team there. 
uh, still do to this day. But, you know, they internally felt like that they needed to, you know, turbocharge or boost their their product and engineering team. As an outsider, I, I didn't know any of this. And so they were looking around and they, they happened to keep hearing our name and uh, had heard of us and kind of knew some of us um, from old days. And so that's how it happened. And, you know, it was probably within that short time frame, maybe four or five times that they had tried to acquire Performable before uh, we decided uh, that it made sense. Yeah, wow. And what about Ghostry? How did that come about? How was that exit? Like, because how did you build that tool to have, you know, within that space of, you know, you said you had 300, to have 300 million people around the world uh, using this, web, mm-hmm. visiting the website, now, but in the space that you built it about a year, you know, you had you had 31 million people. How would you, how did you build something like that mm-hmm. so fast and how did that come about? You know, Ghostry is probably my craziest one in terms of, um, in a speed. couple of different ways. Yes, yeah, speed for sure. One, I only and and also that I kind of ignored it. It wasn't really a business focus, even though I managed to have all these people using it. Right? It was kind of like this accidental thing that uh, kind of grew out of control in a good way. Uh, so, Ghostry was something that I built, a tool that I built for myself, and it was super geeky. Right. So I didn't think anyone in the world would care about it but me. And it helped it let me know what other what third party JavaScripts were running on a site that I would visit. So, you know, if I would go to foundermag.com, I could see like, oh, they're running Google Analytics and they're running, I'm just making this up, Marketo, and they're running uh, MailChimp and they're running, you know, this other product and Zendesk and this and that. And I didn't think anyone would care about that. And, you know, they're running this ad network and Facebook pixels and all this kind of geeky stuff. But a friend of mine in San Francisco, you know, saw it on my browser. And this was a Firefox browser at the time. This was a plugin that I built. And so he asked me to release it so that he could use it. And I thought, okay, he's equally as geeky as I am, but no one else is going to care. But it was easier for me to put it in the Firefox plugin uh, store back then than it was for me to basically tell them how to install it. And so I put it on there and it kind of grew out of control on its own. And uh, it wasn't the first in its category, right? There were a lot of, it turned into ability, a privacy tool, right? So that you could see what's running on a site, but also block those, the things. Let's say you don't want double click or you don't want to see ads. Uh, You could use Ghostry to, to block those ads. It wasn't the first, there were lots of other tools out there, but Mine was the first that was really focused on having a friendly experience. You know, we had the little, I had the little ghost. I had the, you know, the name Ghostry. I kind of package it more like a brand and as a friendly website versus everything else was like really technical, really hard to use. And so, you know, my tool was the tool that, you know, literally grandmothers in the Midwest would use and email me about and CEOs that, you know, in New York would would install on their browser, right? They would never install some of the other technical tools out there and kind of it grew on its own. But, you know, the whole time it was growing, it was really, it was just a plugin in the website that I built that was part of it. And then I ported it over to Chrome when Chrome was about to launch extensions. But the whole time I kept dismissing it and saying, this isn't really a business, right? Even though there were millions of people using it, oh, it's just a little toy that I did on the side. But I kept getting... Um, companies that were interested in buying it. And this was about the time that it was getting ready to start performable. So I talked to a number of them and I agreed to sell it to a company in New York. Back then they were called Avidion. They have 
since renamed themselves to Ghostry. That's how big Ghostry became bigger than their core business. Wow. Uh, and, yeah. And so there are, you know, there's 300 million people using it now. Ghostry, the company is at last count over 100 people uh, with offices in Utah and New York City. And, uh, and they're growing nicely. And so, you know, that's a happy story. But a, a thing that, you know, I looked at now I would, could look back at it and be like, wait a second, it was a big business there. But I kind of dismissed it because it was, you know, I'm used to doing more B2B things mm. and it was more consumer thing. And I kind of viewed it as, you know, as a toy. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So we have to, you know, I, I know you're, you're, you're strapped for time and I know I'm very, very grateful for your time, David, but we have to talk about your latest company now. So you, so you sold Performable to HubSpot. You worked at HubSpot for a few years and you you've been doing a lot of angel investing and, and and advisory and stuff like that. But now you've started a new company about a year and a half ago called Drift. So tell us about Drift. Sure. So as you said, I you know we sold uh, Performable to HubSpot. I was there for three and a half years, and I ran engineering product operations. I mean anything that had to do with the product. And then we got to a point where we were about to go public as a company, and um, you know. When we got there, the company was maybe 200 employees. By the time I left, we were well over 1,000 uh, people. And wow. uh, yeah, crazy. My team alone was, you know, 200 people by then. And we had, you know, offices in actually Sydney. We had offices in uh, Dublin. We were about to off- open offices in Singapore and, of course, here in Cambridge. But, you know, I reached a point where uh, there was so much to do and learn. But the things that I felt, the things that... I would learn after we went public weren't the things that I really wanted to learn, right? I really wanted to see that scale from 200 to 1,000 people, mm. from private to public, and to learn all the things that, that we went through in that short time frame. And so I decided to leave. I didn't know what I was going to do at the time. And um, my co-founder from Performo, who's one of the VPs of engineering at, at HubSpot, he uh, decided to come with me, and so we went off and said we're going to start a new company, and that's how we started Drift. And at Drift, we're focused on helping businesses understand and communicate with their customers, right? Really simple. At HubSpot and at Performable, at my past companies, I've been focused on helping companies get more leads and turn those leads into customers. But by, when they become a customer, that's the end of HubSpot. That's the end of Performable. And at Drift, we're focusing on everything after you convert someone into a customer. How do you communicate with them? How do you do that now that everyone's used to Facebook Messenger and chatting and SMS and this? And everyone has a different kind of view on communicating that didn't exist you know, even a few years ago. And so we're helping businesses with that. Gotcha. So is it kind of like an intercom kind of play or? Uh, I'd say we have some stuff that's, you know, overlaps with them, the live chat stuff yeah. you know, on your site. So you can do that stuff. I'd say, you know, all the website and, and mobile messaging stuff uh, for businesses is at its infancy right now. Right? We're just at the beginning and, uh, and we're going to see a lot happen in this world. And so, you know, there are the old players like live chat and uh, a couple other, you know, smaller public companies that have kind of focused in on this area more from a support standpoint. There are newer folks like Intercom and a, and a few others. And then there's uh, the newest of them all, which is Drift. 
Gotcha. So you you heavily believe that the way things are moving is a lot of in-app kind of stuff and and communicating within the app, whether it's web app, whether it's mobile. Absolutely. So, you know, I think we see it because we are living through this shift, myself, you, others, we see it as kind of a new thing, a shift. But everyone, including emerging markets that are just coming online now, whose main experience is through this kind of one-to-one communication, right? Uh, Whether you call it chat or messaging or whatever you call it, it's not a shift for them, right? This is the world that they've existed in. And we're playing catch up in some ways to this shift, right? You go, you look at whether it's WeChat or other apps within China, you look at apps that are emerging within India and other emerging markets, and this is the default, right? And those populations are way bigger than and the existing populations online, we are kind of learning from them. And so I do think people are headed that way. Even here in the U.S., my daughter, this is the way she communicates. People on my team who have just graduated from college and coming on board, uh, this is what they do all day, whether it's through Snapchat or Facebook or WhatsApp or whatever. This is the default mode of communication. And so absolutely, we think that businesses have to move this way. And we think in a world where less people are paying attention to cold calls on the phone, and now you know even your email is being flooded and people want to move to, whether it's Slack or HipChat or other chat mechanisms, they want to move out of email. How are you going to communicate with your customers? How are you going to communicate with your leads and prospects? The best place to do that is the place that makes the most sense for them, which is while they're actually using your product. Mm, yeah, no, I... I really like uh, what you're doing here and I'm curious, you know, have you found product market fit right now with Drift and you're in scale mode and tell us how you plan to scale this company like you've done all your previous companies. That's a, that's a great question, right? So one that we think about all the time. I'd say in some ways, we definitely think we hit product market fit because this is a category that although underserved, has existed for a long time on the web. This is right? hot. And you, yeah, and this is, you know, chat, you know, whether it's in-app chat kind of stuff that you see with e-commerce sites or support sites. It's been, in our opinion, badly done. There's a lot of room for improvement, and you, at least there's been this first-generation attempt at it. So in yes. some ways we could say, yes, we've hit product market fit. There are, there are public companies who do nothing but this functionality. So it's not like we're inventing, you know, a new form of transportation that's never existed. Yes. Uh, so it does exist. So in some ways we'd say that. But in the other ways, in all of the innovative ways of, in which we want to push and go, and we think that we can transform this this channel, we think we are still kind of in defining hitting product market fit, right? Pre-product market fit on some of that stuff. And so we're kind of balancing the the two of those things. You know, we can go to market and scale right now with the existing pain that exists and then continue to innovate in the newer forms and newer ideas that we have around the way that this this kind of channel can be redefined. Got you. So you're saying that you believe you have something here, you're not 100%, but you will continue to scale and iterate as you go on? Yeah, I'm saying, we, you know, using the old framework, and you call that live chat, let's call it live chat, we can grow, scale, and we are a product market fit in every way that I know how to measure that. And we can go to market with that. I think we can innovate beyond that. And I think the opportunity is way bigger than just what we would consider live chat today. Yes. And that will be something that unfolds over time. Got you. 
So, you know, what 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 is your what is your number one source of customer acquisition right now for Drift? And uh, tell tell us about that. Sure. So it's no surprise. It's uh, inbound marketing. It's the stuff that we preached at HubSpot. And, you know, whether you call it content marketing, inbound marketing, it's through creating content that resonates with, you know, the type of users that we're going after. And it's our number one channel for acquisition. We experiment with lots of different other ideas and concepts. But the thing that we keep coming down, which is the lesson that I keep, I try to remind myself every day, but it's a hard, it's a simple lesson, but not easy to implement, which is double down on what works, ignore everything else. That sounds simple. It's not. And so we always have to remind ourselves the thing that works for us is the remarkable content that we put out, double down, double down, double down, and only start to look elsewhere when we see that slowing down or it's stop, you know, it's, it's becoming less effective, but we haven't seen, you know, anything close to that. But it's a hard thing to remind ourselves all the time. Yeah, wow. So if you if you guys are just doubling down on inbound marketing, I'm curious, how many writers do you have? Uh, how many people in your content team right now? Oh, we're, yeah, we're tiny. So we're like a 16-person company right now, and three of those people right are um, on the content side uh, in marketing. You know, I do writing as well as as well as our PM. So we all kind of back to like how we were talking about at Performa, how we all talk to customers and we all talk to customers here at Drift. Uh, we also all write to some degree, uh, but we have three people focused on that. And then we have other people who are either friends who are guest writing or, or people that we use as contractors to kind of supplement that. But that's hard. You know, we, they have to be at a certain quality level for us to, to want to do that. And so, you know, as you know, those people are rare. And, uh, and so when we find them, we jump on it. Uh, but otherwise, we rely on internal content. Gotcha. So how many pieces of content do you produce per week? You know, our goal is um, for each of the full-time people in marketing that they're putting out three pieces each, each week, right, in different mediums. And that's not just blogging. So that could be blogging, video, uh, that could be slide share, slide decks, internal, private, different forms of content. They're usually putting out more than that. But the thing that we've tried to lean into here is um, it's not just about putting out the content, but it's the follow through, right? It's the, each of those people have to be in charge of their own promotion, of yes. promoting it, of making sure that it's, it's getting promoted in all the right places and that it's, and that's happening over time, right? And as you know, that takes a lot of energy in a lot of cases, a lot more energy than writing the piece. Mm. And so, um, so it's, three pieces, but they really have to focus on driving the numbers on those pieces. Gotcha. And out of curiosity, if you if you guys did an internal blog post on the Drift site, what are the best forms of, of promoting that content? What were the best tactics that you could share? You know, we have a, always uh, our existing customers and our existing users. So we have, right now you can go to Drift and you can sign up to get our product completely free for your website. And pretty soon you'll in a week or two, you'll be able to do that for your mobile app as well. So it's 100% free for as long as you want to use it. Very similar to kind of a Slack model. Yes. Free forever, right? And so our number one promotion is to those users. And so we do that, of course, in app is the best conversion rate on that. And then second to that is uh, emails that we will send out to that group. Yes. And uh, and we try to do emails that are don't have much 
graphic or they look like plain text emails and they are plain text emails from real humans, right? Not automated emails. And uh, we write each of those and they're funny and we spend a lot of time focused on the words on those and test them a lot. And those are the ones that, you know, perform the best. Outside of that, you know, we, depending on the the people that we're going after, something like um, a product manager, a site like Quib, which I don't know if, if many of your listeners uh, know about it, but it's Q-U-I-B-B.com. Yes. It's a small site, very small site, mostly folks in Silicon Valley who use it. But if you want to get at it, you know, take a look at it and look at the demographics at it. It's got a really great demographic and uh, we get really great engagement from that site. And of course, we do the other sites and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and et cetera. But um, it really depends on the piece of content. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Well, look, David, um, time is almost up. We have to work towards wrapping up. I have uh, one more question, and, and and I think I'd be doing a disservice to our audience if I didn't ask you this, but when it comes to scaling a company, do you have a set of rules or framework or anything you can follow once you know that you've found product market or go-to-market, like you're ready to go to market? <laughs> uh, yes, and I'd be happy to... I have some rules that I live by, you know, uh, mm. heuristics, I should call them, instead of rules. Yeah. Right? Uh, and um, happy to share them with you so you can share with the group, um, with your listeners. But they are kind of like what I was saying about being simple, not easy. They are kind of very simple back to basics. We call them B2Bs and internally back to basics that we need to make sure that we pay attention to. Uh, and everything from uh, talking to, you know, firsthand customer feedback. Right as you scale, the easiest one of the easiest things for you to give up is firsthand customer feedback. All of a sudden, you're getting secondhand, thirdhand, God forbid, some fourthhand feedback, and you need to stay vi- vigilant as a team on always first-person feedback. Right, you don't want to play telephone with that, and so we want to make sure as a team that we stay on as we scale first-person feedback. And there's probably ten things on there that we that we focus in on, but that's you know number one at the top. Yes. Because we are customer-driven. Awesome. All right. Well, look, um, we'll wrap there, David. But thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, you have to go now, right? Yes. It's been, it's been a pleasure, Nathan. Thank you for having me on. I, I appreciate it. And I love what you're doing. Thank and you I follow, so much. You know, follow your Instagram account religiously. <laughs> Thanks, my man. Awesome. Yeah. yeah, well, that for us, that's what we're doubling down on. <laughs> oh, I see it. I see it. That's yeah. where you know, I'm always sending it to people internally. Look at this. Look at this because I'm a you know, quote master. So I love what you're doing. Oh, thank you. The Founder Podcast has come to a close, but it's not time to sleep. It's time to hustle. Download the Richard Branson issue of Founder Magazine for free right now by visiting foundermag.com slash Branson. Again, that's an absolutely free download of the Richard Branson issue of Founder Magazine containing an exclusive interview with the man himself. It's only available at foundermag.com slash Branson. So download it now and we'll see you next time on the Founder Podcast.